text this morning is Romans 9, 21 to, to, to verse 29. So I'm going to read that. And uh, as Roman, uh, Roland said, we are just plowing through difficult passages and a difficult section of Scripture. One of the most contested and challenging passages in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, I might say the pinnacle of challenging passages for the New Testament. And actually, interesting enough, because it, it, it's one of the most filled with Old Testament passages. I don't know if there's a correlation there, but I think in many cases we are underappreciative of the Older Testament, and we don't really, we're not as well versed in the language of all of scriptures, which is possibly why Romans 9 and 10 is so difficult for us. So hopefully we can uh, remedy some of that this morning, and by God's grace in the next weeks. I'm going to start reading at verse 19, but I'm going to start exegeting at verse 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Remember last week, the Q&A period where we imagined Paul was on stage and then a person came and said, so Paul, if I understand you right, the logic tells me that God is not just to find fault with people that he has ordained to continue in sin. If you want the answer to that question, you have to talk to somebody who was here last week. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Isaiah 10 just said, it's, will the axe glorify itself over the one who wields it? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called from the Jews, not only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they would be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. May God add his blessing to his word and may it accomplish the work for which it was sent. Let me pray quickly. Father, this is a difficult passage. I pray you would give me help, give our ears and our hearts help to understand it and embrace it and to give all the glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes I get an idea even while I'm reading the text. So we should deal carefully when we're speaking about God's sovereignty. I just want to put this as an introduction. And I want you to recognize that although I speak boldly, I am trying to do so carefully 
because I'm dealing with the subject of God's sovereignty over human beings, friends and family, people we know publicly. My, uh, my, one of the things I loved about Shannon when we first met was that she always asked me to pray for Michael Jackson. It was a person that she just, her heart went out to and she prayed that he would know God and I was young and I, I thought, well, she's a cool girl. I'm going to pray for Michael Jackson too. And Michael Jackson has now met the living God and we don't know what his state is, but God is sovereign and we trust in him. And so we don't deal lightly with these passages. We recognize that we are not the deciding factor in history, right? That's what this is about. We are not the deciding factor in history. The central figure, the decisive figure in history is Jesus Christ. So that's why we speak boldly. Because we're not saying God is sovereign and he has told us his most secret thoughts. We are saying you must cast yourself upon the one who is sovereign. But God does grant us insight into why and even how his sovereignty goes out through the earth. So I don't want to pretend these passages aren't here because they may sound like we're being arrogant as Christians. We're not. We are called to proclaim and believe every word. This is a hard question this morning. This is such a hard question. Have you written down all the hard questions? We can go back and review them together, but why does God create both people that he saves, Christians, and those that he condemns? Or what we might call a reprobate, somebody that does not receive mercy. Why does God bother with them at all? Why not not create people who won't believe and accept Jesus Christ? Many Christians have wrestled with this and come up with many heresies. Things that the Bible just doesn't tell us about God. They're fine ideas if we are the author of all the truth. But since we're not, we have to go to the book. And, and when I said last week, if you press God's book, you get God's answers. So I pray that we are, are, are open and have faith to accept what he has given us. Genesis 18.25 is a verse that may give you much comfort if these are very challenging for your faith. Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? If you're fading out and, you, and this is hard for you, go back to that passage and just, just marinate in that for a little bit this morning. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? The answer to that, of course, is yes, we do believe God will do what is right. So there's three parts to this morning. What is the basis for God's authority over people and over salvation? He hasn't really given us that yet. If you need it, he gives it to us. Why does God create people for destruction? And then who gets to receive his mercy? And that'll almost wrap up chapter 9. I do want to say we are going to take a break probably in early September and do a two or three week series on authority, what Kevin just opened our service with. 
the idea of, uh, of what is justice and what is true and what is true authority. We're going to look at that briefly in September so that as a church, we know what the word says. And uh, so just so you know, we are working through Romans, but we want to address a very important uh, matter that's facing the church right now. So what is the basis for God's authority over salvation or over the earth? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump a vessel for wrath and a vessel for mercy? The basis of his authority is that he made it. God, because he is creator, has authority over his creation. We understand that. When a child draws a picture and another child comes along and grabs it and scrunches it or puts a big slash through it with another marker, the first child says, hey, that's mine. They're not talking about the markers or even the paper per se. They're talking about what they created on that page. Children understand that by virtue of the power of creation comes the principle of ownership. That's the basis of property rights. If you made it, you get to keep it. If you build things and sell them in a store or sell them online, and then somebody comes along and even steals the idea for it, you can take them to court. Because even your intellectual outflow is your property. You can patent ideas that have no tangible reality in the world. Because if it's your idea and it's original, you get to profit from it. You get to keep it. You get to build whatever you want out of it. We understand this. But when it comes to God, how many of us are like that second sibling that comes along and says, hey, I'll take that. That's mine. Thank you. And we forget that God created it. God created me. God created you. God created your children. God created politicians. He created judges. He owns us all. And he, as creator, it creates a hierarchy between his creation. It's absurd to think that an axe, which is fashioned by a farmer or a carpenter, would begin to give lip or mouth off to the one who wields it. It's an absurd thought. And yet, how reflexive do we do that with God? We lip off at God in our hearts and in our words. We forget that God created us. He owns us. Everything is his. That's the basis of his authority. He made all of this. Why does God get to send whatever weather he wants? Because he made it. He made the galaxies. He made this planet. He made the next planet. He made the last planet. It's all his. And further, we need to recognize that God has granted this same authority to Jesus Christ. Remember that there is no distinction between Christ and God in terms of authority. Jesus isn't like the nice younger brother of God who came along and said, listen, guys, I know all of this sovereignty stuff seems harsh, but, you know, come and follow me and I will, you know, I'll take care of God. 
Not at all. Jesus came to fully uh, fulfill God's plan and sovereignty, and then he took upon himself God's very authority to disciple and subdue the earth for his glory. So Jesus is included in that same authority, that same sovereignty. Number two, the second basis for God's authority over something is its designed purpose. We talked about an axe. Uh, we talked about um, vessels of clay. Here in the text, what does it say? One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. In other words, when God makes things, he designs them all with a function in mind. So yes, mosquitoes are part of God's design. So are ticks. I don't like it, but I'm not God. I don't know what they're for. Maybe you do. But God is sovereign over creation. He has designed each part for its place in his total sovereign will. He didn't haphazardly fill the earth with a bunch of trinkets, but instead he created everything outfitted for a different use. In the first century, this would have been an obvious example. Some households, you would have pottery that would contain a, a, a special ointment, like a perfume or an oil, and it would be finely decorated on the outside. It would be precious to the family. It would be worth, it would be handed down family to family. And it was uh, an heirloom. It was valuable. And it was treated with honor in a high place, in a visible place in the house. Other vessels were used for the bathroom. They both started as a lump of clay on the potter's wheel. The potter, knowing what it would be used for, shaped it and decorated it thusly, for use. Now, don't stop here and say, well, Tim's saying that Christians are more beautiful than non-Christians. No. The scripture makes very clear we are all vessels that rightly deserve destruction apart from God's mercy. None of us are born inherently beautiful and for some, you know, grand purpose in terms of our physical appearance. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the use for which they are designed is in the mind of the builder. We do the same thing in our lives. We, we build a shed. Is it a garden shed? Is it a tool shed? Is it a bunkie? That'll affect whether it has ventilation, whether it has windows, whether it has a finished floor, whether it has a lock on the door, whether it has a plexiglass ceiling or a plywood shingle ceiling. We design everything with a purpose in mind. And something that is ill-fitted to its purpose doesn't make sense. You don't build a tool shed and make the doors all out of glass like you would a greenhouse. If a rake slips off the edge of the bench and hits the glass, it's done, right? You, you design things for their function. And so God holds authority because he designed you and he designed me. He designed our bodies. This is also why the pagan anti-God movement wants to undermine the design purpose of your body. I won't go into much more detail for your children's sake, but this is, you can see how anti-God our culture is in the way they try to subvert the natural design of God's creation. 
And so God has authority over vessels for what they will do. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. God is working out even the wickedness in the world to an end, to a preordained end where all evil will be judged. Now, this is something that we struggle with because on the one hand, the world wants judgment. The world wants reconciliation. The world wants a reckoning with sin. If you did something in your past and you're a public figure, that's going to come out in an election. We, we want people to be held accountable for their sins and to face judgment. But then when God says, yeah, I'm good, I got it, then we're like, no, 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 no. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Shall we not render all authority to God to judge? That's very straightforward in my mind, but it's hard because we think we can think through justice better than God. And it's, it's true, we do. I've wrestled with it. You may have wrestled with it. But God is indeed sovereign. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that God is a frivolous, petty, cold-hearted teenager who likes to squish bugs. That's not what this passage says. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? Do I take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? Don't attribute pleasure to God in, in carrying out justice. Have you heard the phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown? It's also not easy being judge of the earth. It's weighty and hard. God is infinite and he cannot be spent, but nonetheless he spends himself conducting and carrying out justice. He vented his justice upon Jesus Christ for our sake. Even 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for all men that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God who would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God's benevolent will is that all would come to his knowledge. Is that what happens? No. Does God contradict himself? Also no. Can I philosophically work that out for you today? Also no. God does not delight in destroying the wicked. He tells us to pray for all people that they would know the living God. Let's let God sort that out. <clears throat> now, he even tells us why he goes about introducing this apparent conflict for us. Why does he even do it? <clears throat> why, why allow the trouble of us twisting our brains into knots to accept this? This is more personal to you. There are two answers in the text. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So although he's willing to display his wrath and his power in the case of Pharaoh, right? He raised Pharaoh up in order to destroy Pharaoh so that God's wrath could be shown against those who oppress his people. 
So we know that God's willing to do that, okay? So now Paul is saying, okay, although God is willing, because we've seen it in history, what if he is also withholding that wrath for a time to make known his mercy to vessels prepared for glory? If you are in Christ, the very existence of the wicked is to show you how much mercy God has shown you. Have you stopped to think about that in a while? That the wicked are there in part for you to appreciate God's mercy. You know why? Because we deserve everything the wicked ever get. That's, that was our destiny before God pulled us out of the darkness. Paul is not using this passage to make Christians proud. He's using it to make them humble. When you look at the wicked, you don't think, oh, look at those people. They don't understand what I understand. Or look at how they're living so far from God. I can't wait until God deals with them. That's not the application of the passage. The application is, God, how could you have mercy on me? Remember the barbarian um, when, uh, the, the, I forget if it was a parable, but the man who in front of the temple tore his shirt and beat his breast saying, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And the Pharisee looks on and says, Lord, thank you for not making me like this person. Don't let this passage turn you into that Pharisee. Thank you for not making me a vessel of destruction like this, you know, these evil people. But instead, God, pour your mercy out on me, a sinner. And so God, he is willing to show his power and his glory through destroying the wicked. And one of the passages I bring up a lot is Habakkuk 2.14. That says, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. While you look very carefully at that passage, and it's talking about God venting wrath and destroying the wicked. Have you ever thought about songs that says, Lord, show us your glory? God primarily in this life shows his glory by destroying the wicked. By sweeping away proud, idolatrous people. That's sobering. When it says the whole earth will be filled with his glory, it will be filled with the sweeping away of the wicked, with the overthrow of the idolatrous, with the destruction of evil. It's hard if you're somebody maybe like Kevin reading through a passage and, and recalling the personal experience you have with the, with the wickedness of the industry of abortion, being pressured to do that for their daughter, it's emotional. Many of us are emotional about the things that we see going on in the world, the things that we see in history past, and saying, God, why? How did you allow it? That's okay. That's fair. You're a human. I'm a human. And we need to remember that God will display his glory against these evil practices, these evil ideals. When the wicked are destroyed, the glory of God is displayed, that he is truly righteous and good. Remember, when Israel entered Canaan, 
they didn't overthrow a peace-loving uh, people, you know, who held a farmer's market every Saturday and held knitting class every other Wednesday. God sent Israel into Canaan to destroy nations that would make our abortion practices look trivial. Evil nations that would sacrifice live children to their gods in the thousands. It was not unjust for God to wipe out the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Amorites. So often we look into the scriptures and we say, that's unjust of God. If God does it, it's just. And we need to remember that sin is sin and wickedness is wickedness and God will deal with it. And if he's allowing it to go on for a time, it's only to build up its potency so that when it's swept away, it is destroyed before all men. And you wonder why the foundations of Canada are tottering, are, are toddling right now. Shaking, the pillars are cracking. Our iniquity as a nation is filling up. Abortion laws were struck down. Does anybody know the year? 1960s, 1970s. Uh, one, of the, one of the prolific pioneering doctors of the abortion industry, Morgan, uh, Morgan Tyler, Morgan Tyler, was given the Order of Canada. He was given an award for pioneering this wickedness. This is 50 years ago. And we have been barreling down this path for decades. Does that go on forever? Will God be mocked forever? The scriptures say no. But when he sweeps it away, it is not to our delight, it is to our humility that we would recognize his mercy for preserving us from that kind of wickedness. The destruction of the wicked exists for your sake so that you would recognize God's mercy. God's tolerance of sin is merely a reminder of the coming wrath that he has. Like if you, maybe if you grew up in a home, a disciplinarian home, and you were sent to your room, and it was like this peaceful moment where you're in your room all by yourself, but you know the that's not the discipline. You know that it's coming. You don't enjoy that peaceful moment in your bedroom before your dad comes up the stairs. It's not enjoyable. It's only enjoyable after the discipline, after you have reconciled with your father. It's the same with our Lord God. And he did it to Israel. And now we're going to close with this idea. Who receives the mercy? Because when God sweeps away idolatry, when he sweeps away wickedness, he preserves some. And that's the remnant that is spoken of here in Romans 9. He talks about vessels of mercy, and then Paul says, these vessels of mercy, are there, are there some in, in Jerusalem and in uh, Israel? Yes, he says, there are many in Israel. But he says, don't get mixed up that this is just a movement and a, and a salvation given for one ethnic nation. He says, even us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea. So now he quotes the Old Testament to explain to us what's going on in this new covenant era. 
You want to know what's going on with Israel and the nations? Let's talk about it. He says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. Those who were far off from God, who had no proximity to his salvation, who had never heard of John 3.16, they never owned a Bible, they never grew up in church, they were far from God in every respect. Her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. That's God's term of endearment and adoption. That he would love those who were far from him. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. That is monumental. Go to the very place where people are most far from God, where there is the most sin, whether it's taking place across the canal here or down in Toronto or in the halls of parliament, in the very place where it was said there is no presence of God's people, God says there they will be called sons of the living God. What I want you to see here is that this, this dual nature of God's sovereignty, though it is so difficult, it is perfectly balanced with the great mercy and hope that it provides. If God is sovereign to harden people and nations against him, then he is sovereign to quicken the hardened heart of a sinner. He is powerful and sovereign to turn a nation around that has rejected him for decades. The same power that hardens the stone softens the clay. I didn't say that quite right, but it's, I, I think it goes, the same fire that hardens the clay melts the wax. God's power to harden is his power to quicken. In the places that are most hopeless, in the places that are most godless, there is hope for salvation because God is sovereign. He will quicken the hearts of the dead when they hear the gospel. We have to see the dual nature of his sovereignty and not fly off to one extreme or the other. His adoptive intent extended beyond his firstborn son. In fact, Israel's rejection, we're going to look at this in a couple weeks, Israel's rejection of Christ is part of the reason that Gentiles began to come in to the church. We're going to look at that later, but Israel's rejection is God's mercy to the Gentiles. And then we have verses pertaining to this remnant. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, we read this in Isaiah 10, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, the Lord, if he had not left us offspring, we would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. So broadly speaking, the gospel overflows in mercy to people who do not deserve it and don't understand it. And on the other hand, it comes as a limiting principle for others. It overflows into the nations and the peoples who never knew him. And it also limits those among Israel. There is a limiting and a hardening 
such that the number of Israel who belong in the church today is only a mere remnant of the total ethnic people of Israel, right? That makes sense, right? We know that. We see that in history. And we need to recognize that all of these Old Testament passages come in the context of God sending judgment. God sending a purifying trial or judgment among his people. I forget which passage it was when I was studying this week, but it says when they come out after Assyria chastises them, it says, I think Isaiah 10 says, they are like an instrument in my hand that I will use to chastise Israel. When they come out, they will no longer trust in the nations. In other words, God's trial purifies their allegiance to himself. When God tests his people, it burns away all of our loyalty to anyone or anything or any institution that is not him. I do believe that's going on in Canada right now. May many Christians come out of a state of mind where the government can do no wrong, it can do no harm, it always has our best intention in mind. Given the introduction to this worship service, we know that's not true. It's not because they're more wicked than us. That's not the point. It's that we need to stop placing in them the authority that it belongs to God alone. It is pulling people out of a mindset of idolatry toward people and things that are not God. And guess what God does? He preserves a remnant. In every season of trial, we need to recognize that God is bringing a hardening upon the reprobate and he's extending mercy towards his beloved. Every trial is God doing that. So whatever you think about this past year, what's coming ahead, I think we can all agree that we can consider it a trial. Send by the hand of God to bring a hardening upon the reprobate and to bring mercy upon his beloved. Where do you fall in that? Are you reaching out to God in true worship? Are you repenting of your sin? Are you walking in truth in the fullness of the Spirit of God, in obedience to his word, then you are a vessel receiving his mercy, his beloved. If you are hardening your heart to the things of God in this season, you may be being cast off. This is God's historic, cyclical pattern with his people. I think we've been sitting around way too long as the church, and I'm guilty of this as anybody else. But as we walk through the days that we're in as a people, we need to recognize that this is what God does. He brings in and gathers through his mercy his beloved. And they will come from unlikely people in unlikely places. How many waiters have you talked to in restaurants that are just fascinated by your hope? in these last days and have asked to come to church or a gas station attendant or a nurse that you saw in emergency or somebody you met in the grocery store who broke down crying, feeling isolated and destroyed and recognizing that there needs to be more to life. God is extending mercy to his beloved. Don't miss that. And although Israel are like the sands of the sea, a remnant will be preserved. 
Don't think the whole church has fallen. Don't think that you and I are the only pure ones. Don't get this Elijah mentality that, you know, we are the few and the mighty. God's handling the remnant. We just enjoy and worship in his mercy. You leave the remnant and the salvation, that stuff to God. And walk in humility, loving your brothers and loving the lost through giving them a true witness of the church and of Jesus Christ. I'm just closing now with a couple thoughts. In every season, God is preparing and pressing his people to be purified. To purify our worship, to purify our hearts, to purify our doctrine, to purify our witness, to purify our cultural engagement, to make us ready for his work. And in that time, the unbelieving may depart from the midst of God's people because they're not interested in being purified. They're not interested in a more pure witness. They're not interested in a more pure doctrine. They're not interested in being rebuked. Judgment begins at the house of God and the reprobate, the hardened, want no interest in that. They like church when it's socially uh, conducive to approval. They want Christianity when in general it's respected. As soon as it costs you your reputation, the, the reprobate is gone. They'll find something else that elevates them in the community. We need to recognize that's happening inside the church. Simultaneously, those outside of the church are witnessing God's mercy upon us. They're witnessing his mercy and his judgment together. And they may witness that and recognize God's love and come in and be added to the number of the elect. God is always balancing his patience with the wicked, with displaying his wrath against it, while hardening and judging some, and loosening and enlivening the hearts of others. God is always doing all of these things. Has the potter no right over the clay to make from one vessel, one lump a vessel for mercy and another for dishonor? We leave all of these things to God. And that's how you can sleep. That's how you can hug your friends, whether they know Christ or not, lovingly and leave it to God. Give them the gospel and, and bring them to God. He knows what to do. I think it's Hebrews that reminds us, behold the kindness and severity of our God. Don't drop one in favor of the other. Don't go all severity because God is calling people who are not his, his own. In the place where there is most deserving of wrath, God is showing mercy there. So do not forget the kindness of the Lord. But do not say there's no consequence for sin because there is a severity of the Lord. And people must be warned of God's justice. And so if we're driving a train, let's rest in the station where we say God is sovereign. He will do what is right. Both in the election of lost sinners and in the destruction of the wicked. Let's rest our train in that station that God is just in doing both. In both cases, his character and his holiness is perfectly preserved and his glory is expressed. And there is no higher virtue in this world than the glory of the one who made it. 
Mosquitoes exist for God's glory. So does this canal. So do you and me and soccer balls and sandwiches. They are for God's glory primarily. Do they feed you? Do they help you? All yes. But they are primarily for God's glory, even all the way to the destiny of every human being. I pray this encourages your soul and gives you an urgency in the things of God. Um, let's close in prayer. And uh, normally I'd be leading a song.